Pendulum Gaming Part 3 The Race I'm very late with the segment. I know I'm in Minsk, Belarus right now, and the conditions under which I record this are severe. Outside it is minus 2,000 degrees or something, and the city is under attack from a German panzer army led by Joe Stedman with a vengeance. So these are the weird noises you hear in the background. I'm sorry. Before I talk about potentially boring aspects of games, let me finish my little series with another concept that makes games exciting, and that is the race aspect. The race is one of the oldest forms of competitions, and probably one of the most dynamic and exciting concepts ever. This is why even already the first films featured car races and mad hunts. I think this probably harkens back to Stone Age times, when the hunters had to keep constantly up with the prey, or when the prey suddenly hunted the hunters back, which was even more suspenseful. But then one could always count on Racco Welch in a fur dress. Strangely enough, racing or hunting concepts seem to interest women less than men. My wife, for example, thinks that car chases in movies are extremely boring. But I digress. Pachisi or Bagammon are classic racing games. Both games are crafted in a way that the race always seems pretty close, both by the then ingenious use of dice. And the closer the race, the more suspenseful it becomes. Modern games are of course more complex, and not every racing game must be a game about horses or cars. In fact, the whole concept of racing lies deep at the heart of the fascination of Euro games. One of the first real Euro was Heron Tortoise, an excellent abstract racing game that creates an interesting situation where the last one can suddenly overtake everybody and win. But, at its heart, it's a classical race. Another example is El Grande. Of course, you might moan and say that it's not a racing game, but an area control game. And you are, of course, right. But El Grande is also a racing game, through its ingenious use of the newly invented Kramerleiste, the victory point track that runs around the board. On this track, it can always be seen who's in the lead, and there is a definite racing feel. In a way, the whole game becomes like a mechanic that empowers your pawn on the racetrack, on the victory point track. It's like the fuel that makes it run. Many victory point track games also include a set end, a certain threshold of victory points, that is the goal which ends the game. It is very difficult to create a VP racing track system that is well balanced, because the worst thing that can happen is that players feel they are so far behind that playing further won't change anything. This is why many racing games have different scoring rounds, with the later scoring rounds becoming more effective than the first ones, a system often used by Rainer Knizia, for example. But there lurks another problem with the VP racetrack, and that is king-making. As it is always obvious who is the leader, players will gang up on him or her. But whereas in a normal racing game, the trailing players can't do anything directly against the leader, except when you're playing Circus Maximus and you whip your opponent into submission, it is possible in many other games. Martin Wallace has become the master of hidden scoring. He very often uses victory tracks, but makes the proceeding so opaque and obscure by adding many, many factors for the end calculation that one can never be sure that the leader is actually winning. Another popular trick is to make the VP track a gauge for punishing the leader through the game mechanics itself, for example by creating the turn order from the bottom of the VP track up. Even neater is the trick used in Primordial Soup, where overtaking your opponents on the VP racetrack is rewarded by actually not counting the space you jump over. So if you manage to fall back and overtake your opponent several times, you'll actually earn more victory points than the player who is in the lead. The variations are countless, 
What is always a necessity is that players get the feeling they are in a close head-to-head -head race, where overtaking is always possible. This mechanic will exist as long as there are games, I'm sure. See you next time, when the MIDI Gamais finally manage to finish the Ten Commandment t-shirt in the favorite colors Kimchi Purple or Spray of Biscay Brown. Hey, how about a I visited the Spray of Biscay t-shirt? GMT, are you listening? Bye-bye. Serious strategy tip number three for Twilight Struggle. Most experienced Twilight Struggle players completely ignore the possibility for realignment roles. I have seen whole games where not one realignment role happens, as it rarely is the tactically viable option. Most of the time it is quite risky, and your opponent very often has the ability to recover his losses while adding additional influence elsewhere, giving him a head start. I don't say realignment is never good, but always look at other options as well. Coops are great. They give you MOs as well, which save you sweat. The best cards to play for coops in terms of short-term gain expectations are actually 1 and 2 cards, especially in regions with weak stability countries. You roll an average of 3-5, which will enable you to destroy 1 influence in a 1 stability country and add 0.5 influence in addition. That's more than you would achieve there with a realignment roll or an ops. A one-card play for influence is very often useless, but if played for a coup, there is always the possibility you could roll a 5 or 6, actually giving you more influence in a weakly defended stability one country than you could achieve by using it for influence. And if you don't roll high, you will still have the MOs, which is also useful, whereas a failed realignment roll will give you absolutely nothing. Consider this when you next play Joe Stadman or the Swedish Smorobrot Inquisition. The Muppet Show will thank you for it.